0: All right, well good morning everyone. I want to maximize our time with our speaker, so I'll get started. So um, all of us at St. John's are huge fans of the nation's 16th president. And one of the things we're proudest of is the fact that so many evenings during the height of the Civil War, the president would walk over alone from the White House to attend Evensong services here at St. John's. And to commemorate that, we have, as we all know, a plaque in the back forever designating the pew in which the president sat, Lincoln's pew. And so we're especially pleased this morning to have with us a representative of Ford's Theater where of course the president tragically was assassinated. Jake Flack serves as the deputy director of education at Ford's Theater. He develops and manages all aspects of the student visit program with a special focus quite commendably on DC public school students and teachers. In addition, he oversees the summer professional development programs at the theater, Civil War Washington, and The Seat of War and Peace, which brings teachers from around the country to Washington to learn about Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. Prior to joining Ford's in 2008, as we were just discussing, Jake taught U.S. history for five years in the New Orleans public schools, but he is a native Washingtonian and a through K-12 graduate of the D.C. public schools, and therefore he has a particular interest in engaging local students and teachers in the legacy of Abraham Lincoln and Civil War Washington. So with that, please join me in welcoming Jake Black. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you very
1: much. It really is an honor uh, to be here today in such a historic and beautiful place. And um, when Clark st- sent me an email inviting me to come today and, and speak about Ford Theater for a few minutes, he shared the uh Long list of very illustrious presenters that you've had in this room, and at this church, and I thought, well, he must have sent it to the wrong email address. So <laughs> in any event, um, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm honored to be here today. As um, as a neighbor, really, Ford's Theater um, and St. John's have have shared the very small area of downtown Washington since the early 1860s together. Of course, the church older than that, but I thought what I would do today. <laughs> is um talk a little bit about what washington was like during the civil war and then um speak a little bit about what ford's does today and i think it's really interesting because um both ford's theater and st john's were were places of refuge for president lincoln um as clark mentioned he would attend services here and and as i've read sort of slip out out the door before the the completion of of the services so as not to disrupt the program. And he did the same thing at Ford's Theatre. He would, um, you know, he'd walk in and he'd watch rehearsals. Sometimes he would just sit in the back row um, and and just sort of, you know, enjoy a quiet moment because, uh, you know, the Civil War, Washington was extremely chaotic and um, it was a place for him just to sort of escape and be around people but sort of have time to himself. Uh, But when Lincoln arrived in 1861 um, from Illinois on the train to assume the presidency, the city that he entered was vastly different than the city his body would leave four years later. Um, in just the four years of the Civil War, the, the city went, underwent a, a rapid transformation in terms of both the built environment, um, but also in terms of the population. So in 1861, when he arrives, Washington, the the grid of the city was really small. The the northern boundary was a street called Boundary Street, um, and Boundary Street is still there today. It's Florida Avenue, so that gives you an idea of sort of the extent of the city. Uh, And of course, um, the Potomac River was a lot wider than it is today. Um, The area where the Lincoln Memorial and all of East Potomac Park was water, and that was filled in in 1901 as part of the Macmillan plan. Um, And so what that meant was that Washington was much more of a port city. The river was used not for paddle boards and jet skis like it is today, but it was actually more of a commercial um, enterprise. And that was sort of the goal originally when when the city was laid out, was to have Washington be this grand port city. And um, actually, it's kind of uh, fitting for where we are right now, but Thomas Jefferson's idea um, was to, in, a, in, in another effort to sort of distance the new country of the United States away from England, um, was to move the Prime Meridian to Washington. And so um, 16th Street was actually the line where, the, where, the, where time would start, where the Prime Meridian was. That's why it's called Meridian Hill Park, um, and there's actually a small stone that looks like the top of the Washington Monument, but it's only about this high. And it's about 30 or 40 yards uh, south of the monument. It's called the Jefferson Pier Stone. And so that was marking the line from that stone all the way up 16th Street, right past St. John's Church, up to Meridian Hill Park. Um, anyway, so now I guess I was trying to make the point that it was supposed to be more of this grand port city. Um, of course when lincoln arrives most of the large buildings that we or the important federal buildings that we know of today were either not built yet or under construction and in fact at his first inaugural address on uh, march 4th 1861 the dome of the capitol wasn't completed yet and there are these wonderful photographs showing sort of the blurry crowd shot, you can't really make out Lincoln, but you can see that the dome is under construction. And there was, um, you know, a lot of people said, well, let's pause, the, let's pause work on the dome because we could probably use the money for the war effort. And Lincoln was very insistent that construction not stop because he said, you know, as he called it, a rebellion. This insurrection or this rebellion will not um, affect the business of this country. Uh, very close to here also was the unfinished Washington Monument, which uh, during the Civil War sat at 150 feet. Today it's 555 feet tall exactly. Um, and the, actually, the, the soldiers, some of the Union Army Signal Corps soldiers would use the monument. They'd get up at the top and with their flag send signals to some of the other forts around the city. Um, and so, like, this is sort of first of all, there were no paved roads. Pennsylvania Avenue um, parts of it had like shell paving but so there was a lot of you know the city the, the, the roads were muddy and of course when it rained and then the mud dried it was really hard to get around on the bumpy roads. that's one of the reasons Lincoln was carried across the street as opposed to being brought back to the White House. Um, so beyond the sort of the, the, the small built environment, the population of the city, when Lincoln arrives, is really small. It was sixty thousand people, and it would triple in just the four years of the Civil War. And there, there were really three major groups of people who were coming into the city. Um, the first were soldiers. So the war, you know, after Fort Sumter, Lincoln calls for a hundred thousand volunteers to be sent from the states. I think it was um, the amount of troops required from each state was proportionate to the population. Um, So some of the first soldiers who got here from Pennsylvania and New York um, had nowhere to live. And so they actually lived in the Capitol. They lived in the basement of the Capitol. And there are some wonderful old photographs that show these units of of soldiers in front of the Capitol sort of standing in formation. Um, And you can see the construction materials and the the cranes and there are stones piled up. And it's it's really interesting. And then eventually, the National Mall was turned into essentially a huge military base. And there were about 40,000 soldiers who were living and training on the mall. Um, And their food supply was being stored there, too. So there are wonderful images of, like, you know, hundreds and thousands of, of head of cattle grazing. And you can see the White House in the background. So you can sort of imagine how that smelled and, you know, contributed to the overall unsanitary conditions of the city. And then those were the for, the first soldiers that would head into the, the first battles in, uh, in Northern Virginia in Bull Run. And and tragically, many of them would be back, brought back um, as casualties, and there were makeshift hospitals that were set up all over downtown. So Lincoln actually would actually go down to the mall fairly often, and he was very interested in technology and any sort of technological advance that could give the Union Army an edge. So he would watch new weapons being tested on the mall. He would watch um, Professor Thaddeus Lowe, who was using hydrogen balloons for reconnaissance. And he actually um, received a telegraph message from his office in the White House from a balloon that was like 500 feet in the air. So he was really interested in... Technology. So you had had these soldiers moving in, and then eventually even more soldiers came to staff the 68 forts that were built around the city to protect it during the first year of the war. Um, Many of these places are still with us today. If you're familiar with the Fort Totten Metro Station, that was one of the Civil War forts that was built. Um, If you've ever been to a concert at Fort DuPont Park in Anacostia, that was one of the, the Civil War forts. But there was essentially a, a ring of 68 forts that circled the city. Because during the Civil War the goal of both armies was to capture each other's capital. That's why the majority of the wars fought between Washington and Richmond. Um, and actually the the Washington was attacked at one point. There was one Civil War battle in the city and that happened in uh, July of 1864 at the northernmost fort, which had the least amount of soldiers guarding it. Um, the Lincoln family lived during the summer months at a house on the grounds of the what was called the Old Soldiers' Home, um, the, the one that's up uh, North Capitol. And today it's a wonderful museum called President Lincoln's Cottage. Um, But they lived up there for a couple of reasons, really. Number one, it was cooler. There's, you know, Washington is a a bowl, essentially. We're, We're in the bottom of the bowl right here. So I know when you come, you probably come on Sundays in the summer, and when you leave, everyone's sweating. It's hot, right? Well, it was really hot without air conditioning and wearing wool clothes. So the Lincoln family lived up there. If anyone's been to President Lincoln's cottage, which you can visit today, it's still very serene and beautiful and quiet and you can hear birds and there's always sort of like this gentle breeze. Um, and then he also moved up there to get away from the hustle and bustle of downtown. Anyway on July 11th 1864 he was alerted that this uh, approaching Confederate Army was coming from the north coming down what's today Georgia Avenue. And there were uh, 12,000 troops led by Confederate General Jubal Early and they spent a lot of time sort of probing the northern fortifications. So that would be Fort Reno um, near Tenley Circle, um, Fort DeRussy in Rock Creek Park, and then Fort Stevens and Fort Totten. Those guarded the, the northern entrances to the city. Um, and they landed. They, they decided to attack at Fort Stevens. Lincoln gets in a horse carriage and rides out to watch the battle. And the, the way that the forts were constructed is they were made of really thick earth walls that, that would sort of um, absorb cannonball fire. And then they would have cannons and then uh, pits for rifle, rifle pits where soldiers could go down. So Lincoln, who was six feet four inches and, wore, of course, wore that top hat, was standing on top of the wall. Uh, watching this invading column of this cloud of dust coming down what essentially is Georgia Avenue today. It's called the 7th Street Pike. And some of the Confederate sharpshooters who traveled in front of the main army, they, would, they were responsible for, like, sort of deciding where the attack should happen. They see this tall guy with a top hat on. And so they start, ta- they ta- they start taking shots at Lincoln. And a soldier who's standing next to him is shot in the leg. And so the officers around him realize what's happening, and they pull him roughly down to safety. And there's various um, records in history of, of what they said to him, but it was essentially, get down, you fool. And, uh, <laughs> and they, they sort of whisk him um, into a horse carriage and you know, down 16th Street, right past this church, into the White House. And as he's coming down 16th Street, um, and what's today uh, Georgia Avenue all the soldiers from the other forts from the southern forts are running up north to drive away this attack and they do they do drive successfully drive away this confederate attack but had they been successful the confederate army who knows what could have happened they could have had just an easy walk down Georgia Avenue and possibly captured the capital of the white house so today fort stevens is a very understaffed underserved national park site um that is right off georgia avenue and piney branch road there are still a few of the cannons there some of the earth walls but um to my mind how important uh, a a piece of ground it is it's i I think it's under there is no ranger there there's no visitor center there's a couple of plaques but um i would love to see more awareness generated for that very Important piece of land for American history. Um, So, okay, so a lot of soldiers are coming in, and then, of course, along with that is a lot of people moving into the city to work in this thriving wartime economy. Um, The Civil War is really the first example of, of war being big business for this city as it is today. Uh, you know, defense contractors, but back then there were people who were working in the Navy yard, making the cannons and, the, and some of the, the ships that were, were being used. Uh, there were newspaper reporters. You had to be here to find out what was going on in the war. Um, there were people who were setting up um, churches and hotels and restaurants and theaters. Ford's Theater actually opens uh, as a result of this population boom. And um, and so, you know, it was, it was really uh, uh, this thriving economy. And then finally, uh, the third group of people who came were African-Americans, who particularly came um, after April 16, 1862, when, when uh, slavery was outlawed in Washington, nine months before the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but essentially, as the United States Army, I refer to it as the United States Army or the Union Army, as they pushed uh, you know, farther south, people who had been enslaved um, were often left behind by their enslavers who were fleeing. And uh, it presented a really unique opportunity for, for, the, for the United States and for the United States Army um, one of the things that, that we do in our education programs when we work with students is we sort of not dispel, but we, we, we like to sort of reframe how Abraham Lincoln and slavery are remembered. Um, I think that the the, the the sort of common misconception is that Lincoln ended slavery um, with the Emancipation Proclamation. And of course, that's, that's not accurate because the Emancipation Proclamation actually didn't free a single person. What it said was that if you were enslaved in one of the states in rebellion, so in one of the Confederate states actively fighting against the United States, that you were free. Well, of course, the people who were you know, enslaving aren't going to listen to that, right? And so what the Emancipation Proclamation did was it allowed Um, black men to join the United States Army and fight for their own freedom. So eventually, um, 180,000 black men joined the Army and Navy. um, And really, I I believe that they are more responsible for ending slavery. I I look at it, I tell students that it's sort of like, Abraham Lincoln signed this permission slip allowing these men to fight for their own freedom. so when that happens, when, when DC um, first enacts what was called compensated emancipation, where the government actually paid um, enslavers for, the, for about a little over 3,000 people who were held in slavery in Washington. And of course, you, know, you have the, the, the protection of the forts. You have now this legal document saying slavery is outlawed in Washington. So a flood of African-Americans come, about 40,000. And when they first come, um, it sort of overwhelms the infrastructure that was set up to, to accommodate these people in what were essentially refugee camps. And um, the first um, camp that was set up was set up very close to U Street. It was called Camp Barker. It was very unsan- uh, unsanitary place, and there was a cholera outbreak. Um, and so, you know, pretty early on in this, this wave of, of migration, they realized they had to find a healthier place that was, you know, more sanitary, less disease ridden. And where would that be? That would be up on that natural bowl, that natural ridge that surrounds the city. And conveniently they had overtaken Robert E. Lee's plantation of Arlington. And so the first use of Arlington was as a refugee camp called Freedman's Village. And and I think close to 25,000 people lived in Freedman's Village. And even after the war, that community remained in that area um, into the 20th century. Um, And some of the uh, earliest burials at Arlington National Cemetery are people who lived in Freedman's Village. They're in what's called Section 27 of Arlington National Cemetery Um, and so uh, so they take over so so you have you have all these groups of people moving into this city and and it's really like it's dangerous they don't know when an attack is coming there are southern spies moving around there's like a lot of disease Um, and so it's it's really a a dangerous place and then sort of to get to the to, to where Ford's Theater fits into all of this Um, there was a rapid series of events that happened in April of 1865, um, actually starting in March when Lincoln is elected for a second term and he gives his famous second inaugural address on March 4th, 1865 in front of the Capitol again, now with the completed dome. And at this point, um, the Civil War is pretty much over the confederate army is running on fumes they don't have you know they don't have the, the manpower or the equipment or the finances to continue fighting and so when lincoln gives this speech at his inauguration he's essentially laying out his plans for reconstruction and what's going to happen when the war is over and uh, rather than taking a punitive tone and announcing that he's going to you know punish the people who started this rebellion and you know maybe put their their leaders in jail or deny their rights to own property um, and vote and everything else. He takes a conciliatory conciliatory tone and he says, we're going to bind up the nation's wounds. In other words, we're going to heal together. We're going to come together as one country. And it was very forward thinking because um, You know, it's still considered an example of of great presidential leadership that's admired by both Republican and Democratic presidents. Um, So that's how sort of what we knew what his thought process was. About a month later, Richmond falls. So again, the main goal, capture each other's capital. That finally happens in early of April 1865. Just a few days later, uh, Robert E. Lee surrenders his army Uh, On April 9th in Appomattox, uh, Virginia. Um, And when that, when word reaches Washington the next day on April 10th, there's a a huge celebration. And I'm sure that um, St. John's participated in this. It was called the Grand Illumination. And basically, the mayor and the city council issued these proclamations that everybody down, in downtown Washington, was ordered to light up light candles in their windows. There were torches in front of the Willard Hotel that, that uh, read, I think it was, Victory. Um, there was dancing and parading in the streets. There was just this, this sheer sense of, of joy and relief and um, safety, knowing that the, that the city was no longer under threat, that there was not going to be any more killing and people were ecstatic. A huge group of people uh, excuse me, came right here um, in front of the White House, and they demanded that, that Lincoln give a speech on April 10th. And he came out on, into the portico, and he said, you know, um, come back tomorrow. I don't have anything prepared, but I, I like to speak. You know, I like to be prepared. So come back tomorrow, and I'll have something for you. So an even larger cl- crowd came back the next uh, day, which was April 11th. And that night, Lincoln gave his final speech. And in that speech, he spoke more about his sort of specific plans for how Reconstruction would start and some of the things that would change. And one of the things that he said was, I, I think we should allow uh, certain black men the right to vote, particularly those who fought in the United States Army. And so what he's saying is he's introducing, for the first time in American history, the idea of African-American citizenship and voting rights. And this is even before the 14th Amendment has passed. 13th Amendment outlawing slavery has just passed, and the 14th Amendment, arguably the most important amendment in the United States Constitution guaranteeing citizenship, has not yet even passed. So what he's introducing is a very progressive and forward-thinking and new idea And um, one of the people who was in the crowd was John Wilkes Booth, the assassin. And John Wilkes Booth allegedly turned to his um, one of the co-conspirators, and he said, um, he's talking about N-word citizenship. By God, now I'll put him through. That's the last speech he'll ever give. John Wilkes Booth was a white supremacist racist who wanted the Confederate army to win the Civil War, to continue the process of slavery. He saw Lincoln as being the uh, sort of the chief um, obstacle in allowing that to continue. And so he uh, actually came up with a plan to try and aid the Confederate cause. And his plan was to kidnap Lincoln. He was gonna kidnap Lincoln on his daily ride from The White House, which it's so cool to be looking at the White House as we're talking about this. From right there, right behind that bus. Um, Again, remember Lincoln's living up during the summer months at at what's today President Lincoln's cottage. Well, he still came to work every day in a horse carriage or by riding a horse, sometimes with a column of soldiers, sometimes unguarded. Booth's plan was to kidnap Lincoln during this commute, and um, exchange him for Confederate soldiers who were being held in a prison of war camp in um, Maryland, in in Point Lookout, that small piece of land where the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay meet. And he was gonna kidnap, there were about 30,000 soldiers in this prison of war camp and he was gonna exchange them for the kidnapped president, hoping that this would sort of give the Confederate army a shot in the arm um, well, after that rapid uh, succession of events, including the surrender on April 9th, he changes his plan from kidnapping to assassination. And the plan was not just to kill Lincoln. It was essentially a terrorist attack against the United States government. The plan was to kill the president and the vice president and the secretary of state and the main general all on the same night, if possible. So. So, on the morning of April 14th, um, a messenger, again, from the White House, now I can see the messenger leaving, goes to Ford's Theater and tells the the theater owners, the Ford brothers, that that, uh, the president and his wife and two very special guests would like to come to the theater that night. Um, Lincoln wanted to be around people. He wanted to be part of this citywide sense of celebration that was going on. It was going on all week. Uh, He wanted to come see a comedy. He loved theater. His special guests were going to be uh, General Ulysses S. Grant and his wife, Julia. John Wilkes Booth, um, of course, was an actor. He was not the most famous actor in his family. That would have been his brother and his father. In fact, he'd sort of fallen on hard times at this point. Um, Anyway, he was um, living in a boarding house, but he was having his mail delivered to Ford's Theater. And so that morning, he was actually sitting on the front steps of the theater, and he heard the messenger have this conversation. So he realized it was the perfect opportunity for him to carry out this, this newly hatched plan that he'd been working on. Um, so he spends all day with, with his friends, who we call the conspirators, and they sort of assign each other, everybody, a certain role. Um, General Grant comes home, I guess at lunchtime or something, and tells his wife that they are going to go to the theater that night, and she gets very, oh, this is great, I love the theater, and, and he says, yeah, we're guests of the Lincolns, and she says, well, I'm not going then. <laughs> and apparently, um, Ju- uh, Mary Lincoln had uh, insulted Julia Grant at a social function a month or so earlier. So she was not going to sit in a theater box with Mary Lincoln. So Ulysses S. Grant has to uh, apologize to the president that, that you know he got his signals crossed and they have plans or something. <laughs> anyway, the Grants leave town. That's why um, Grant is not attacked in this plot. But word starts to spread around town that, that Grant and the Lincolns are coming, and the tickets to the theater sell out really quickly. Um, I'm sure with the help of the Ford brothers telling everybody that that's going to happen. Most people, like you could see Lincoln very, very regularly walking from the White House to the War Department, you know, commuting to to the Summer House, um, walking around downtown. He was really accessible. But nobody had ever seen Grant. They'd just been reading about his exploits on the battlefield. And so the real draw that night was to see Grant. Um, but of course he wasn't there. So the Lincolns invite some other guests and, um, they invite, um, uh, a friend of Mary Lincolns whose name was Clara Harris and her father was a, uh, Senator Ira Harris from New York and her fiance, Major Rathbone. Um, and so they're all, they're all there. And then the pl- and the play starts and, um, you know, I think it was in the third act Booth, um. Knew what, knew what play it was and he was familiar with it. And he was familiar with when sort of the funniest line of the play was gonna be delivered. And that's when he times his shot. Um, he comes in a back door and you know, Lincoln was not guarded. There was no security. So that's how Booth is able to um, easily enter the box. Shoots Lincoln, stabs Rathbone, jumps on the stage and then he had a horse waiting for him out back. And um, he escaped out of town that night and was basically tracked by a unit of cavalry soldiers. And he was shot and killed in a barn in Virginia 12 days later. Uh, Lincoln was carried across the street. Again, the bumpy streets would have made, bringing him back to to the White House um, on a carriage, you know, dangerous and probably killed him. And so he dies in a house across the street the next morning. And so that's sort of the, the story, um, in a nutshell, of what happened at Ford's Theater. Um, and as I mentioned, today, we're still a working theater. We have four major shows a year and um, a, a suite of active education programs. As Clark mentioned, we uh, bring about 4,000 DC public school students a year to the theater for historic tours and for um, matinees. So, I'd be happy to answer any questions, if anybody has any. Thank you very much.
0: I've got one. Sure. Uh, so, I know this is you know hypothetical, but do you think it was possible, is possible that Lincoln might have survived today with modern medicine?
1: You know, that's a question that a lot of people ask, and the answer is we don't know. But I think that, um, I think the nature of the wound that he had, he was shot right behind the left ear, and then the bullet traveled all the way across through his brain, essentially, and lodged behind his right eye. I I don't know enough about medicine, but I, I can't see surviving that. What I do know is that, um as he was being sort of tended to throughout the night, as he lay dying, doctors were uh, probing the wound with their bare hands, introducing bacteria and they had metal probes. So, you know, I, he really didn't have a chance at all. And it's hard to speculate about today, but I, from what I know, I don't think so.
0: And can you tell us more about the? against the vice president and the secretary
1: of state? Sure, so he had, there were other conspirators assigned for those roles. Um, The secretary of state was attacked right here. Um, His house, I believe, was right across from the park. And uh, William Seward was the secretary of state, and he was attacked by Lewis Powell um, by knife, and he survived, actually. And then the vice president was living at a hotel on... Pennsylvania Avenue, and the the man, George Atzerodt, who was assigned to assassinate the vice president, went to the hotel, and rather than going upstairs to room number seven and shooting Andrew Johnson, he went to the hotel bar and drank a bunch of whiskey. So then he put down his glass and ran out. He was okay with this plan when it was about kidnapping, but when it got to assassination, he really wasn't into it. So I saw a hand over here. Yes? Uh, I
0: think I went to the... Uh. Hear a talk by the Ranger one uh-huh. day at Ford's Theater. I think he said that Ford's Theater held a lot of people.
1: Yes, that's an interesting point. Today, when we have a sellout, it's 655 seats. So if you come see a Christmas carol, you know, get one of those 655 seats. Got to put in a little plug for the, groups, the group sales office. Um, but when Lincoln came, they think there was close to 1,700 people there, and that the reason for that is there's really two. Uh, today we have big, comfortable seats. Again, another plug if you want to come see a show. Um, but then they had these wooden cane chairs that were not comfortable, and they could, you know, obviously smoosh them together. Uh, but there's three levels to the theater. Today only the first two levels are used. The third level, which was called the family circle. Um, were the cheap seats, those are 25 cents. And up there are wooden benches, much like the pews in the church. Um, and they could, they could stuff about a thousand people up there. And so that's where it was really packed. Uh, but today we just use that set, that level for the technicians who run the lighting um, and the sound. So nobody sits up there, but they could just jam the people. and, and the theater itself was a pretty rowdy experience. I always tell students it was like watching um, professional wrestling today, where people would engage with what's happening on the stage, and they would throw stuff and, you know, spit tobacco juice and, and, and scream. And so that was another reason why they wanted to get Lincoln out of the theater, because it was not considered a place for a president to, to pass away. That was very unfitting, a very unfitting place. Yes, ma'am. Know that we had the contents of Lincoln's pockets the night he died I do hey, can we get those back? <laughs> no, no I, I do that's a wonderful that's a wonderful thing. and actually, um, the Library of Congress, um, a few years ago when we commemorated the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of Lincoln's death, um the Library of Congress was nice enough to loan us the contents of those of his pockets, and as were other, Uh, institutions and we have um, exhibit space across the street from the theater and we had this really interesting temporary exhibit where all of these different repositories who now own artifacts from that night returned them so for the first time in 150 years all of these things were back in the same room including Mary Lincoln's dress and the contents of Lincoln's pocket um, as well as some of the the, the flags, um, there was a, a flag that was draped in front of the box, today it's a recreation. Somehow it wound up in a very small um, historical society in a small town in Pennsylvania. And there was like this Eagle Scout troop from Pennsylvania who brought the flag. I always get all choked up. Mm-hmm. It, was so, it was so moving, these guys come in like in their uniforms with this incredibly important artifact. Wow. Um, but anyway, that's, it was a really nice example of, of institutions coming together to, to provide a larger example or, or view of something. Uh, yes, sir?
0: Now, as we live in a time of, of public shootings, uh, I'm wondering, you know, what, was the, what were the ramifications of, of that assassination? I mean, was there immediately mayhem? Uh, were pe- other people that, uh, injured during the... Um, evacuation of the theater, did the theater close down, was a security, yeah. an issue in the city uh, after that period? Yeah,
1: so what happened, you're exactly right when you say there was mayhem. Um, as soon as Lincoln's brought outside into the street, um, that sense of joy and celebration immediately turns 180 degrees on 10th Street, right when he's brought out. And there's sort of this... Um, this vigil outside the Peterson house all night while he lays dying. And while that's happening, there are rumors flying. I, I know that you remember everybody in this room, September 11th, when that happened, that terrible tragedy. But remember, like, throughout the day, rumors were, oh, Seattle was just attacked. Boston, you know, there was, things were flying. That was exactly what was happening in downtown Washington. There's a Confederate army coming across the, you know, the, uh, the Potomac or... Um, the vice president's dead, all of these things. And then, of course, there was the anger, too. And um, the theater's closed immediately. It's a crime scene. And it's, it, the next day, it's photographed by the famous Civil War photographer Matthew Brady. And there's a, a wonderful image of Ford's theater with black mourning cloth draped from the walls. And you can see, by the doors, there are soldiers guarding it, armed soldiers. And that's because a lot of people wanted to burn the place down. They said, something terrible happened here. Let's get rid of it. And they're like, hold on a second. Um, you know, this is a, an active crime scene. We're still investigating. Are other people involved in this? And, um, but to, but to your, your question about security, um, what's amazing is that um, the last thing President Lincoln did, his sort of last presidential act, was to establish the Secret Service. Did that, I think, on the day that he was assassinated. And... Um, the, the, the point of that was not for security. For presidential security, it was to investigate counterfeit money. During the Civil War, they had a huge problem with different states printing money or people counterfeiting money. And so um, the Secret Service is established under the Treasury Department. And it was until September 11th when it was moved under Homeland Security. And the Secret Service still investigates security. I mean. Um, uh, Confederate, Confederate, counterfeit money. Um, but anyway, it would take two more presidents to be assassinated before they're like, you know what, we should probably like have a dedicated protective service. So um, James Garfield and, and William McKinley in 1901 are assassinated, and then it's they're like, okay, we're going to put the Secret Service on that. Yes?
0: Yeah, I understand that after the assassination, the theater uh, was used as a building for government offices until this, one of the floors collapsed and a bunch of people were killed?
1: Correct. That's very. true. When did they then
0: reopen the theater as a museum?
1: So what happens is, thank you for bringing that up because I should have covered that, but um, it's closed immediately after the assassination and the government eventually buys it from John T. Ford for $100,000. It's used as like a warehouse, um, and then it's used uh, for offices, for basically um, federal workers who were processing Civil War records. And they built a subfloor, uh, like a, a, a floor, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they built another floor, and it was constructed um, very shoddily, and in 1893, this, it collapsed, and it killed 22 federal workers. And um, it actually it sort of there was this big investigation and a lawsuit against the builder, and it um, established some of the early uh, building codes that are in Washington today. But it was another tragedy associated with that. Um, after that, again, it was used for another a couple of things, including um, the Army Medical Museum that was then moved eventually to Walter Reed. I remember. I don't know if anyone ever saw that museum when at the original Walter Reed campus off Sixteenth Street, but it was a, like we used to take class field trips there, and it was it was half terrifying and half like unbelievable because <laughs> they'd have like these jars with like a, a blue liquid and someone's arm in it. You're just like whoa. <laughs> um, so it was used for that for a little while, and then um, and then the government um, in 1931 opens the Lincoln Museum in the basement. Uh, and eventually, um, around that time, the Peterson House is also um, purchased by the government, and that's opened up. And it wasn't until 1968 that the, that the sort of the renovated theater opens um, as it looks today, and the theatrical programming starts. So it's 103 years after Lincoln is assassinated. I
0: think we have time for one more. Okay. to have a teacher like
1: you. Oh, thank you. I was say I had the great privilege of being on 10th Street on the 150th anniversary of that big ceremony they had that morning, and i always remember that, too. Thank you very much. Yeah, we had we had 24-hour programming. You could come at 3 in the morning if you wanted to, and we had uh, actors who were doing um, historical accounts of, like, the, you know, of the announcement of Lincoln's death. It was it was very moving and about 5,000 people came in the street right at 1010 when he was shot 150 years and held up candles, so. Anyway, I really appreciate you all very much inviting me today and please come see us at Ford's Theater. <laughs>